Well, it's great to be back with you this morning. I asked you last week, did you want me to tell you the truth or just make you feel good? And you unanimously said, tell us the truth. And as the old program says, you ask for it, okay? You remember that? Years ago. Well, if you happen to uh, <clears throat> catch the paper this morning or listen to the news, no doubt you saw that North Korea is now saying that overnight they have detonated a thermonuclear device that they claim they can put on one of their missiles and send it to the United States. Whether or not that's just um, a lot of hot air or actually what happened, uh, it, it's quite obvious to me that uh, Kim Jong-un is a different kind of person, okay? Uh, all right. He's, he's different. He's leading a nation that's uh, totally different from what I am used to, what I have grown up under. Uh, and it appears likely uh, that unless something happens, unless something turns all of this around, we're moving mo- closer and closer to a collision point. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel, that... Um, that we're moving towards a collision point of another nation. But it's happened in the past, and it's going to happen in the future if the Lord tarries. But I want you to understand that it's not the greatest uh, collision that we have experienced in this world. There was another time when two worlds converged. And that's what I want to begin talking to you about this morning. Uh, For this morning, and Lord willing, for the next three weeks, uh, I want to just hone in on John chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 17. There is far more there than can be covered in four Sundays, certainly in four sermons. But we're going to touch the high points and begin this morning. 2,000 years ago, an event took place that changed the destiny of mankind forever. Heaven met earth in a way that humanity can only comprehend if they listen to God and believe what he says. There's no other way that you're going to understand what happened 2,000 years ago. God's book tells us you're going to have to believe it because there's no other way of discerning what that was all about. And I can think of no other place in the Bible that really demonstrates that and really presents that more than John chapter 17. But before we read it, let me give you a bit of a background. And this background will not just be for this morning, it'll be for the whole month of September. In John chapter 13, verse 1, the Apostle John begins that chapter with these words. Now that's John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Now watch this. Pay particular attention to these words. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That begins five chapters that I believe shows without a doubt how much God loves us. Okay, You say, well, I thought John chapter 3 did that. Um, 
3.16. John 3.16. We've all memorized it. For God so loved the world. Certainly it does. But I don't think anything shows us the depth of Christ's love more than these five chapters. And it's his love for the disciples, but it's love for us. Let's not stop with those who stood around 2,000 years ago. I believe this chapter deals with every person who would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone, past, present, and future. Now, if I can picture the scene, if you can imagine uh, Jesus and his disciples going to that upper room. Maybe you've been to uh, Jerusalem and gone to uh, what was either the upper room or one like it. How they gathered there, uh, certainly later in the evening, the oil lights would be burning. You'd smell the, uh, the, the scent of that oil. Uh, you'd see a small table laid out on the floor with pillows, which they reclined around it. And the disciples fellowshiped with the master. They just enjoyed being with one another. That happened many times during those three years. But I think there was something different about this evening, this particular evening. Then Jesus gets up and he takes off his robe and and he does something that shocked the disciples. He washed their feet. He washed their feet. A job for the lowest slave. Any, um, any person who was uh, a fit to be a host would have someone come in and wash your feet. <clears throat> Jesus is the host, but he washes their feet. And then he privately reveals to John who would betray him. And shortly after that, Judas leaves the room. They eat the supper, and following that supper, Jesus institutes uh, the Lord's Supper, that memorial uh, meal by which you and I remember the Lord's death until he comes. They sing a hymn, and then Jesus begins preparing them for his departure. The conversation starts in the upper room, but Jesus finally tells them that it's time to leave, and they walk through the darkened streets of Jerusalem, Jesus teaching all along the way. They make their way across the Kidron Valley, and then up the Mount of Olives towards what was called the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus continues to let them know just how much he loves them promising to prepare a place for them, promising to come and get them to be with himself, that where he is, there they might be also. The disciples are puzzled. From that upper room all the way to the, towards the Mount of Olives, they are puzzled, they are bewildered, they are they're saddened, they're confused. And probably more than anything else, they're just tired. Been a long day. And they're tired. But somewhere along the way, as Jesus is teaching, suddenly he stops. I picture it as an an abrupt ceasing of his teaching, as maybe all he does is turns aside. And when he turns aside, he lifts his eyes towards heaven, and he begins to pray as if he's all alone. 
Later, the Holy Spirit did His perfect work and brought every word to John's memory. And he writes it down. Let's begin by reading the first eight verses. I invite you to stand with me as we read. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they've kept your word Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to each the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. Holy Father, I pray by the work of the Holy Spirit who preserved this truth, that you would guide us in it, and I pray that it would be more than just information as glorious as that is. But I pray that it would also be admonishment, that it would be direction for our lives and for our living to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Would you be seated? To listen to that prayer is like eavesdropping at the very door of heaven. Every word is an expression of love. As the Son of God figuratively reaches His arms out and gathers every believer of all times and just draws them together and lifts them up to the Father. It's amazing. If you're a true follower of of Jesus Christ. Even if you're not a sensitive person, and we aren't, we aren't all that sensitive, particularly as men. We, we're prone to be a bit superficial at times. But even if you are, as you hear this, you, you have to be impressed that something very important is taking place. It's the very depth of God's working with man. There's been an abrupt transition from the temporal when Jesus was merely fellowshipping with people. And now it has transitioned to the eternal. When God himself is dealing with your future and where you'll spend all eternity. This is spiritual insight as I dealt with two weeks ago at the highest level. We are hearing things and and becoming privy to things that are at the very heart of Jesus' mission on earth. We've already 
learn perhaps in your study of God's word that not everything Jesus said and did on earth is recorded in this book. I, I hope that doesn't take you by surprise. You know, three, three years, uh, 33 years of life, they can't be all recorded in here. Um, I, I, I like what John says as he concludes his gospel. He says, and truly, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You see, Jesus prayed many prayers in his earthly ministry. Um, he, he prayed many prayers. He, uh, he, he, he did a lot of things, the memory of which has long since been buried with those who originally heard it. But these are written that we might believe. These are recorded that we might believe. These have been written down that you might believe. Have life in his name. Um, he, he prayed this in, in their hearing. Those 11 disciples now gathered around him. And the Holy Spirit now later causes John to remember every single word. That just amazes me. It just blows my mind because how often we hear something and our minds drift. And then we kind of get back and say, boy, I wish, I wish I'd been paying attention to all of that. John remembers every single word. Now, this is important. And the neat thing is, again, if you're a true follower of Christ, it's important because you're mentioned in here. You may not see your name, but it's here. He's praying for you. He talks about you, and he talks about everyone you will ever influence for Christ. And he did that 2,000 years ago. So this morning, I want to begin by looking at the foundation of this great prayer. Let, let's, if you will, go behind the scenes. Because I want us to see what was really happening in that moment when Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, now let me just read the first three verses again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, you whom you have sent. The first thing I want you to see this morning is two worlds apart. There are two worlds that are, are an infinity apart. There is the Father, and there is all flesh. You see, the world was once a good place. Hard to imagine, but it really was. Can you imagine a world where there's no sin? you imagine a world where nobody thinks an evil thought? Where every, a world in which everybody has, has, uh, has good intentions. Well, everybody were only two. First man and the first woman. They were at perfect peace and in harmony with God. Uh, it was a place where the first man and the first woman, it says, walked in the cool of the day with their creator and fellowshiped without fear and without guilt. My, what a wonderful existence. And then sin came. Sin entered the world. And that fellowship was broken. 
It's been broken now ever since. It's like a chain with a broken link. The two ends pulled apart, seemingly never to be drawn together again. And the man and the woman were driven out of the the garden in grief and despair with only the memory of what, what 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 it was like one time when you were able to fellowship with God without sin. And if you read your Bible, you see that life after that was a downward spiral. It didn't get better. It just kept getting worse, carrying man further and further away from from God. It got to the point where the Bible says, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That was the environment. What a contrast. Sweet fellowship with, with, with a, a, a drastic separation from everything that's holy and peaceful and just. And then the flood came. Only one man and his family were saved. Yet after the flood, evil still multiplied. And man was separated from one another, speaking different languages and developing different cultures, becoming more and more secular, less and less a mind for God. God called Abraham, and from him grew a nation, and that nation was a continual disappointment, continually. He gave them a king, King David, a man after his own heart, but David sins. They all sin. The people sin. There's civil war and, and two, one kingdom becomes two kingdoms and both proceed to ignore God and accuse God and to rebel against God and experience the judgment of God. It's getting worse and worse. And finally, God brought his people back to their land and gave them prophets who prophesied that a deliverer was coming. God himself was going to send the Messiah, the Christ, who would give them a new heart and take away their sin. But the people killed the prophets. And when the deliverer, Jesus, came, John says he came to his own people, but they didn't receive him. In fact, they belittled him and rejected him and plotted against him and did everything they could to bring about his execution. But the night before that happened, the good news, after preaching the good news for three years, after verifying what Jesus had said with healing the sick, raising the dead, and loving the people, Jesus makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he stops. It's like everything that's happened since Adam's sin has come to this point, and Jesus, he stops. And he he prayed before many times. He had taught the disciples to pray. But this time, something's different. You can almost visualize it as Jesus takes his eyes off the disciples and lifts them to heaven. Two worlds are within his reach. On the one hand is the Father. It's the Father. John uses a definite article to describe Jesus' actions. Uh, He says, he looks to the heaven. The heaven. It's not, he just looked to heaven. In the Greek, it's the heaven. It's the throne room of God. 
He stands upon earth as a man born of woman, but he looks to, to, to his home as the Son of God. Eternal, immortal, God only wise. Before him is the place he left and the place to which he is about to return. And notice, it's not my father. He doesn't say, he looks up to the heaven and says, my father. It's not my father. It's not our father. It's just father. What is this? It's the father. The only one. The one who reigns. The Lord God omnipotent who reigns. God all holy, all perfect, light in whom there is not even a shadow of turning. No darkness at all. He is just and he does not, he cannot tolerate sin. He can't do it. His decree resounds back to the Garden of Eden. Sin brings death. To disobey God is to be eternally separated from Him. We don't like to think about hell. I don't like the thoughts of hell. But Jesus said, it's a real place of weeping and wailing and grinding of teeth. And it's eternal. It never ends. There's no back door. And although it was made for the devil and his angels, it is heaven's opposite. It's the only alternative to spending eternity with God. If you're not there, you're going to be someplace else. And hell's the only other place. And Jesus stands there. The Father on one side. And on the other is all flesh. That's me. That's you. That's all mankind since since Adam. Standing behind Jesus is the representation of every man who has ever been or ever will be born. Lost humanity, without life, without hope, without a Savior. They are defiled and and left to their own. They They just get worse. I mean, that's the testimony of man's history. Someone said, just leave man alone. He's got a spark of divinity. Just fan it a little bit. He'll get like God. No, leave him alone. He gets like the devil. It just gets worse and worse. That's all, all flesh. And it's not just mankind. It's you. It's me. It's us. On one hand, the Father. and the other side, it's us. The Old Testament declares it and Paul repeats it. Listen to him. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You say, preacher, that's negative. Why on earth would you fill us with such negativity? I visited a family one time when I was pastoring Nanceman River. Uh, when I went to the home, it was a, a father and a child. The wife was gone. They had visited the Sunday before, and, and we had a wonderful visit. Wonderful visit. But as I left, I said, I look forward to seeing you again. And much to my surprise, he said, I never intend to come back to your church again. 
My Why? He said, because I don't go to church for somebody to make me feel bad. Listen, Isaiah wrote, all flesh is like grass. In other words, we all grow old, we all wither, we all die, and we face God. You're not going to change that. No one's going to change that. Two worlds are in conflict. One holy, the other defiled. One righteous, the other corrupt. One the very essence of glory, the other already condemned. The chain is broken, and none of us is able to put it back together. Oh, we try. Man tries uh, with, with uh, doing the best he can. How many times have you said, you know, are, are, you, are you saved? Well, I do the best I can. Let me tell you, it's never enough. We try to put it together uh, with religion, but religion is found time and time again to be insufficient. How about good intentions? Well, it's good intentions. I, do I need to tell you what's paved with that? Listen, we try, but we keep getting worse. Um, listen, of all places, the answer is found. What are we going to do with this? The answer is found in Job. Of all places, I don't know about you, but if you read your Bible through every year, don't you get excited when you come to the book of Job? Well, I finally got to Job. And you feel like you're at a tennis match, hitting it that way, and then then batting it back, back and forth. And yet, the answer to the dilemma is actually found in Job. You remember the story? Lost almost everything. I say almost because he didn't lose his wife. And I won't even go there. I mean, he's sick and diseased. She's the one that says, curse God and die. (laughs) She's an encouragement. I tell you, sick, diseased, friends come to comfort him. Boy, friends like that, you don't need enemies. Job felt frustrated because God was so far above him that Job was unable to plead his case. You read it. He's so frustrated. If I could just sit down with God and plead my case. I mean, he was caught in a religious culture that said, if you do good, you're blessed. If you're not blessed, then you didn't do good. Job says, I ain't done nothing wrong. But I can't argue with God. Uh, And so in one of those responses to his friends, Job says this, Who can bring purity out of an impure person? No one. I need someone to mediate between God and me as a person mediates between friends. That's what Job says, Job 14, 4 and 16, 21. And Jesus stops to pray. Job, listen carefully. Your answer's coming. And in that prayer, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. If your Bible is still open, look at verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What's happening here? 
Who is this man? Well, what has he come to do? Uh, Who is he doing it for? I say that because that's what the disciples were thinking. Please don't think that I'm being disrespectful. But this morning, I want to identify who Jesus is. Jesus is the missing link. He's the missing link. To a chain that had been broken and never to be put together, Jesus is the missing link. Now, I've heard that before. I I heard it in school for years, scientists so-called, trying to find the link between man and the lower forms of life. But let me tell you the true uh, missing link is a link between man and a higher form of life. To be in God's family. Let me tell you. Uh, he, he, one dead and dying, we face that, uh, excuse me, we face a world that's dead and dying, uh, that had no hope whatsoever, uh, the other requiring perfection, no sin at all. Jesus becomes the link to pull it together. Jesus said that his father had given him authority to give eternal life. I want to point out four things, and I hope I hope you will take your notes and write them down, because I want you to take them home with you, okay? Because in that statement, I can see, without a doubt, God has a plan. God has a plan. You ever wonder, God, what are you up to? You know, doesn't the world sometimes feel like it's just running helter-skelter? I mean, you have floods and all these types of things. By the way, uh, as we've been praying I, uh, for the people in Texas and Louisiana, the thought, my thought is people are often drawn to God through crisis. Maybe we ought to be praying for conviction more than deliverance. That through the conviction they would be brought, drawn to Jesus. God has a plan. What does he say? The hour has come. The hour has come. Uh, Again, there were things Jesus did not do. There were places he did not go because he would say, my hour has not yet come. You read it. My hour has not yet come. But now he says it has come. It's an appointed time, indelibly engraved in God's plan for man. You see, none of this is new. If you read your Bible, it's all there. He revealed it to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He echoed it to Noah. He reverberated it through Moses and David and the prophets. It was God's plan to fix what man had broken. Sin would be atoned for. Man could know forgiveness. Listen, God has a plan. And I'm so glad that he does. But what is that plan? What is it? Well, he tells us. The plan is, Jesus is the way. He's the way. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Notice, he says, the Son. Jesus prayed, Father, but he says, the Son. He told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, the life. And if he is the way, there is no other way. 
I hear people say, well, sure. Let me just tell you, I had a Baptist preacher tell me one day, well, we know that Jesus is the only way to heaven for us, but that doesn't mean God doesn't have another way for somebody else. A Baptist preacher. I got up and left his office as quickly as I could. No, he's not a way. He is the way. In fact, that's exactly what the apostle Peter preached. In Acts 4, he says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul writes to, to Timothy, he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. Job, do you hear it? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. All that God has done... All that God is doing, all that God will ever do, will bring glory to Him. Jesus was glorified in the completion of His work, and the Father is glorified in that work. Jesus, do you hear me? Jesus is the way. God has a plan, and Jesus is the way. The third thing is this, and I'm so glad. He's in control. He is in control. Look at what he says. You have given him, if your Bibles are still open, what's the next word? You have given him authority over all flesh. Authority, exousia. It's authority to rule. It is the right to rule. Jesus, though every bit man, is also every bit God. He is God. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And by the way, by Him all things are held together. Was there a moon shining that night that Jesus stopped to pray? Let me tell you something. He made it. He created it. Was there an owl hooting in the distance or birds singing in the night? He created it. In fact, He created it all. Everything out of nothing. The very dust under Jesus' feet was his doing. And he could even then, if he were a mind to, stoop down and molded a man and breathe the breath of life into him. Because he is in control. But what did he do? Does he have some great display? Does he call angels down from heaven, legions of angels, to deliver him? No. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God, that means he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did John say? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. How? To the end. To the end. On that cross, he completed his work. To such an extent that he could say, Tetelestai, it is finished. 
And he wasn't talking about his life. He was talking about his work. You say, well, how do we know? I mean, he said, is it finished? I've, I've died for sin. I've paid for sin. Uh, the payment has been made in full. How do we know he didn't tell a lie? How do we know that he really told the truth when, when, when he said it is finished? Because three days later, he was gone out of that tomb. His resurrection proves it was finished. He did it. And because of that, the fourth thing, it shines even brighter, and it's this, salvation is assured. It's assured. What does he say? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. But some will say, how do we know if we're among those who have been given to Jesus? Now, that's a fair question in light of that, that scriptural statement. You ever wondered that? Have you wondered? Jesus said, all who Father gives will come to me. Uh, how, how will I know if I have come to him? Well, I can tell you this morning, you can, you can take this to the bank, okay? John chapter 6, verse 37, he says, All that the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So the question this morning is, not were you given to Jesus by the Father, the real question is, will you come to Him? Will you come to Him? If you will, it means putting Jesus first in everything. You say, does that mean my family? Does that mean my job? Yes, everything. Everything. But wait a minute. When I say everything, you you aren't really leaving any of those things behind. In reality, you're turning them over to someone else. You're entrusting them to Jesus. That's what surrender is. Turning them over to Him. You see, when you come to Christ, you don't leave behind your responsibilities. Those responsibilities are transformed into ministry. Your family, your job, everything, a ministry that you might glorify Him. As a pastor, uh, one of the things that I think caught me off guard more than anything else is when somebody would introduce me as their minister. Oh, we would like for you to meet our new minister. This is our minister. And I wanted to say, I'm no more minister than you are. I may be your pastor. I may be the, your preacher. But we're all ministers. To yield to Christ it is to become his minister. Is that your life this morning? Is that your testimony? You see, Jesus was praying for the disciples, but he also prayed in verse 20. I do not ask for these things only, for, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Will you believe? Will you believe? It all boils down to that. Will you believe? You say, well, I believe. I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about here and here. I'm talking about surrender. I'm talking about yielding to him. Will you believe? Will Jesus really be first in your life? Would you bow your heads, please? In a congregation this large, 
there's the possibility that someone might be a charter member of this church. I don't know when Kempsville started, but you could have been around, as I said last uh, week before last, you've been here nine months before you were born, but inside this doubt, inside this struggle, if the doctor was suddenly to tell you, you have three days to live, your life would be in a tailspin. And I'm here to tell you this morning that can all end in peace by the one who came to pull the two ends together. That we who are alienated from God and sinners with one fault after another can be reconciled to become the children of God. If you will believe. Right now in the privacy of your own mind and heart. Why not tell him? He doesn't care about the words. He's more concerned about the intent of your heart. He wants you to give up to him. But words have a way of sealing things. Just tell him. God I know I'm a sinner. But Jesus I believe that on the cross you died for me. You're my missing link. I believe in trusting you. I can be in your family. So right now, Jesus, I surrender to you. I invite you to come into my heart and life and live. To take the sin away, but to live in me. That as three days later you rose from the dead, I want you now to live in my life. And Jesus, with your help, I promise, I will live for you to the day I die. Now, with no one looking around, nobody, please, just me. I promise not to embarrass anyone. But if there's anyone who just now prayed that prayer, I just want to pray for you. As you begin your new life, would you just raise your hand for a second? If you just now prayed that prayer, would you raise it? Would you raise it? Anyone? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Just lift your hand and put it down. Father, I pray for the one who raised their hand and for others who who didn't but are about to do business with you or have. I ask, Lord, that you'd endue them with strength. I pray, Father, that they would be willing to be honest and speak the truth in love. I pray that they would be willing to to take a, a, their first opportunity to to stand before others and say, I have decided to follow Jesus. To be able to say the mystery is solved. There's no more doubt. Christ is in my life and heaven is my home. Father, would you do that? Would you work in them to bring glory to your name? For I ask it in the name of Jesus, for his sake, amen.